0: Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week we welcome a teacher who survived the Parkland, Florida school shooting in 2018. Sarah Lerner, who published the book Parkland
1: Speaks, shares stories from students and teachers who survived that trauma. And as a survivor, you know what those families, what they're all feeling and and going through and it's just awful.
0: Lori Robertson joins us from factcheck.org and we end with a bright idea, improving health and well-being in everyday lives. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Buscelli and Margaret Flinter.
2: Our nation is once again facing a reckoning over mass shootings and gun violence. The latest tragedy at a Texas elementary school has left 19 children and two teachers dead. This follows the racist motivated killing of 13 people at a Buffalo grocery store. Our guest has an important and personal perspective.
3: Sarah Lerner is a teacher at the Marjorie Stoneham Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, where 17 students were shot and killed just over four years ago. She's also a founder of Teachers Unified to End Gun Violence.
2: Sarah, thank you for joining us at this very tragic moment. Um, and obviously, all, all Americans' hearts are are breaking and we simply can't make sense out of this situation. And you wrote an essay late last year in the New York Times that asked the question will my students ever know a world without school shootings Uh, and here we are just a few months after you wrote that piece and unfortunately we know the horrific answer I'm wondering if you could share your thoughts
1: sure thank you so much for having me I'm I'm glad to be a part of this conversation um I don't even know where to begin about what happened yesterday it is almost two weeks since the shooting in Buffalo. It is a little over four years after the shooting at my school. And here we are again, except this time it's an elementary school and they were just babies. And it just breaks your heart every time you hear about something like this, regardless of the, the setting and the circumstances, it's just terrible. And as a you know a survivor, you know what those families and what that community, like what they're all feeling and, and going through. And it's just, it's just awful. Well,
3: Sarah, we're speaking to you from Connecticut, uh, relatively close to Sandy Hook Elementary School and mm-hmm. our community health center was involved after that mass shooting and providing grief counseling uh, and support You've shared that you sought therapy and later were diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, can we take a moment to ask how you are doing and what's your advice right now for your teaching colleagues at Robb Elementary?
1: Um, I am okay. Uh, it was it was a very long, difficult night last night. Um, thankfully, I have a therapy appointment scheduled for tomorrow. So this so z- <laughs> is not good timing but also good timing Uh um i i guess the advice i would have for those at rob elementary is to take care of themselves it's very hard in the immediate to recognize your trauma like you're in shock for days and then you move through the stages of grief, regardless of, you know, how intimately connected you were to the instance itself. Um, but, you know, it, it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to, to seek help. Um, it's not okay to just sit in it and allow yourself to kind of go down that rabbit hole. So, you know, that's my advice for everyone who goes through something like this.
2: Well, you thank, know, seek, thank you so seek much. help. Here. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that, uh, Sarah. And I think, uh, unfortunately, um, too many people have had to go through this in, uh, situation and you know, after the Parkland shooting, you were the editor of and a contributing writer for Parkland Speaks, and it was a book featuring art and writing from the Parkland students. How did that book help uh, students uh, deal with the grief that they were facing? And uh, uh, is, is, it a, is it a vehicle for others to use as well?
1: Yeah, I, I believe that it is a vehicle for others to use. I have friends who teach in different parts of the country, and I know that they have used the book in their, you know, in their classes as part of their curriculum around the anniversary, and also at different times throughout the year. Um, as far as the book coming together, it—I was approached by a senior editor at Random House. In March of 2018, um, she'd asked if I'd be interested in working on an anthology of student work, artwork, photography, poetry, and prose. And of course, I said yes. So I spent the remainder of the school year, um, you know, collecting all of that from the students. And I edited the book throughout the summer. I contributed two pieces myself, um, and then there were two other teachers who each contributed a piece. And what it ended up being is just this phenomenal piece of history. Mm-hmm. It is an incredibly heavy book. The students, you know, were so happy to participate and get their voices and their stories out there because there hasn't been something like parkland speaks before and you know it 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 tells the story of these kids who survived something like this and lost friends and you know lost their innocence that day and it's you know it's it was a lot to do but it was important and um you know i'm I'm glad that people have responded well to it and, you know, are able to read it and use it and take away from it.
3: So I wonder uh, if you could share with us how was the organization Teachers Unify Against Gun Violence created, and maybe share with us a little bit about its goals and its agenda, uh, how how that came to be, and and what its
1: work is today. Yeah, absolutely. So immediately after the shooting at Oxford High School at the end of November, um, Abby Clements, who was a teacher at Sandy Hook and is still a teacher in Connecticut, and Sari Beth Rosenberg, who's a teacher in New York City. The three of us are in a group chat together and Abby sent out a text. I want to say it was on a Saturday. She's like, so enough is enough. I think we need to start an organization to support teachers to work to end gun violence. And without skipping a beat, Sari Beth and I were like, yep, we're in whatever you need, let's do this. And it just started that easily. And we have worked over these months to um, form this organization. We have a board, we have our tax exempt status. We have done panels that included Randy Weingarten, the president of AFT, Fred Guttenberg, who lost his daughter Jamie at the shooting at my school. Jamie was one of my students. We had on Dr. Joseph Sacharin, who is a trauma surgeon and a gun violence survivor himself. Um, you know, as well as others on that panel. Um, you know, we are working, to make communities and schools safer, because we know it's not just school shootings or gun violence at school, it's gun violence in communities of color, it's suicide by gun violence, it's domestic violence, and it all finds its way into school because it's the baggage and the trauma that these kids carry with them, or that you as the educator carry with you. So. You know, in order to fix gun violence, which is also a public health crisis, you know, we we want to give a voice to the teachers. I'm sorry, the bellas are being school descended for the day.
2: You know, that simple proposition, "enough is enough," uh, should yeah. resonate with more more people than uh, than it has. But uh, we're glad you acted on this and. You know, we agree that gun violence is a public health issue, but not everyone sees it that way. In fact, surprisingly, in 1997, Congress ended funding for the Center for Disease Control and Prevention's gun violence research. Hard to believe. And it wasn't until 2020 the federal budget has finally restarted that funding. Uh, But um, I'm wondering um, what more we can do in the public health arena.
1: Uh oh gosh, I don't even know where to start. There's so much we can do. There need to be background checks. People un people who are 18 years old should not be able to access these firearms and weapons of war. You know, the second amendment is not just carte blanche to tote around your weapon anywhere and everywhere. You know, we no longer need a well-regulated militia. I'm not opposed to guns. If you feel that you need to have one to protect yourself and your family, that's fine. But a handgun is significantly different than an AR-15, which is the weapon of choice for all of these shooters. Um, We need safe storage laws and regulations. We need to not have ghost guns. Like there are so many things that can be done And it's a shame that, you know, 50 senators are holding this up and preventing all of this legislation Mm -hmm. from taking place because children are dying. People of color are dying. Like it should not, it should not be happening. And yet it continues to happen.
3: Sarah, uh, almost everything we can talk about relative to this issue is hard uh, to talk yeah. about, and uh, I uh, think that we, the last group I want to put any more burden on for anything is teachers and school right. administrators whose job is pretty hard uh, to begin with. But I, I think you've uh, written that, uh, looking back at the uh, the event in Michigan, uh, Oxford High School, uh, that that maybe uh, the threat hadn't uh, been possible threats hadn't been recognized or or taken seriously enough before that mass shooting what what can teachers and administrators look for in terms of warning signs for something that might come from uh within their community have you have you looked at that have you tried to
1: explicate that a bit um i think it's i mean as an english teacher i see like the students writing and you know we in the English world are privy to journal entries and essays and things that, you know, like a math teacher wouldn't be. So it's, you know, we see those things and we read those things where other teachers might not. Um, it's always hard to know though, what a student is thinking or feeling if they're not forthcoming and open and honest. and. You know share those things with you so sometimes there aren't any warning signs you know it's it's the last person you would expect so you know if it's like the you know the saying if you see something say something Mm -hmm. it's true but sometimes you don't see things and there's nothing to say well that's so you know i hope that yeah.
2: Helps. And, and Sarah, you know, uh, we see you in the classroom, um, yes. you are obviously uh, as an English teacher listening to words and writings all the time, uh, taking the measurement of where students are and, you know, behavioral health issues have, have loomed large, um, not only relating to tragic is- incidences like this, but certainly the pandemic itself has created a sense of isolation. I'm wondering what you're seeing uh, in terms of the, how would you sort of describe the mental health status of the students that you're encountering? What, what, what's, what's the sense and feel uh, on the ground in a classroom?
1: Um, so, the students who are here on campus weren't students who were here that day. Like mm-hmm. all of those students have graduated. So in spite of that, there's still this understanding of, you know, what a school shooting means. And you know, we practice code red drills and we we do all of those things. I think when, shootings have happened in years past when we've had um when we had those you know 214 kids here we it was a much different feel in the immediate you know aftermath of those other instances now they get it but on like a tangential way Mm -hmm. because they weren't actually here but they've been practicing these code red drills and you know lockdown drills for years because of what happened at our school. Um, the vibe for me today—I've been distracted, thankfully, by yearbook distribution, so I haven't you know been like sitting in it. But it's still been you know what happened yesterday is definitely at the forefront of my mind and my thoughts. Um, I haven't had many conversations with my students about it today, simply because it's also senior exams. So I haven't had many Mm -hmm. students here. Um, But I know that it's been, you know, part of their conversations amongst each other. I just haven't had had much of an opportunity today to talk Mm -hmm. to them about it.
3: Well, Sarah, thank you for taking the time to join us. Thank you for sharing your reflections. Most of all, thank you for being a teacher every day. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. Take care now. Thank you. Thank you.
4: It's likely the 10-year assault weapons ban, which expired in 2004, will get renewed attention after the deadly mass shooting at an elementary school in Texas. In fact, President Joe Biden mentioned the ban in his remarks after the shooting. Biden helped shepherd the assault weapons ban through the Senate as part of the 1994 crime bill. We last looked at the impact of the ban in March 2021 after Biden claimed that it, quote, brought down these mass killings we found that the raw numbers when adjusted for population and other factors weren't so clear on that however there was growing evidence that bans on large capacity magazines might reduce the number of those killed and injured in mass public shootings at the time biden was speaking after a mass shooting at a grocery store in colorado in which 10 people were killed The assault weapons ban in the 1994 law prohibited the sale of certain semi-automatic firearms and large capacity magazines that could accommodate 10 rounds or more. Existing weapons on the banned list were grandfathered, meaning people could keep them. A sunset provision meant that the ban expired in 10 years. A review of gun studies by the RAND Corporation, updated in 2020, concluded there is, quote, inconclusive evidence for the effect of assault weapons bans on mass shootings. A RAND senior behavioral scientist who led the project told us he didn't think there were great studies yet to determine the effectiveness of the ban. The research RAND was able to review, quote, doesn't provide compelling evidence one way or the other, he said. But some emerging research about post-ban trends may provide useful information. For instance, research published in 2019 in the journal Criminology and Public Policy found that after controlling for population growth, the assault weapons ban did not appear to have much of an effect on the number of mass public shootings, comparing a pre-ban period with the 10 years the ban was in effect. But the researcher found the severity of mass public shootings, meaning the number killed and injured, had increased dramatically in the post-ban period after 2004. Research published in the same journal in January 2020 concluded that assault weapons bans didn't appear to be associated with the frequency of fatal mass shootings. But state laws requiring handgun purchasers to obtain a license and state bans of large capacity magazines did show an association with reductions in fatal mass shootings. Other research published that month focused on the role of large capacity magazines The author, Christopher S. Koper, principal fellow of George Mason University's Center for Evidence-Based Crime Policy, concluded data on mass shootings suggest that large capacity magazine restrictions could, quote, potentially reduce mass shooting deaths by 11% to 15% and total victims shot in these incidents by one quarter, likely as upper bounds, end quote. He said the success of any ban on assault weapons and large capacity magazines may depend on how the law is implemented, especially with regard to grandfathering existing weapons. And that's my fact check for this week.
2: Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Fitness trackers have become all the rage, especially among upwardly mobile, fitness-conscious people seeking to monitor their own health and fitness goals. But another trend has emerged in the age of wearable devices. After a few months, about a third of users simply stopped using them, leaving a lot of costly devices sitting on the shelf and not in use. The reality captured the imagination of Tuskegee University School of Medicine professor Dr. Lisa Gualtieri.
5: I had read about the abandonment rate. And I thought, what if you could take all of these abandoned trackers and give them to the people who could benefit most from
2: them? She thought, what if we could get disinterested owners to donate their used fitness trackers and wearable devices to be a repurposed and donated to underserved populations?
5: A lot of the work that we've been doing has been with older adults, racial and ethnic minorities. For a lot of people, they're quite interested in Owning one of these devices to help them increase their fitness. And for a lot of people, the cost is prohibitive. So I think that that's a barrier for a lot of people.
2: So in 2015, she launched her nonprofit enterprise, Recycle Health, an online social media campaign to raise awareness for her program, which seeks donated wearable devices no longer in use, to provide these expensive devices for free to those in need. She partnered with organizations working with low-income adults in wellness programs and those with mental health issues, seniors in fall prevention programs, minorities, and veterans as well. Her goal is to start collecting vital data on the deployment of these devices and the impact they may be having on behavior change in vulnerable populations.
5: What we do is talk to people about how active, how sedentary they are, and coming up with a reasonable and achievable goal to helping them to see it as an educational process where they might start off with 2,000, 3,000 steps as their goal, but they know how to make that higher when they're ready to.
2: So far, the numbers of donated devices have numbered in the low thousands. She's hoping to scale that number up significantly in the future and to expand their data collection on health outcomes for vulnerable populations who gain access to these wearables. Recycle Health, a simple repurposing of personalized wearables, providing these tools for free to vulnerable populations, empowering them to engage in activities that can improve their own health, Provide useful data on using these devices to improve population health. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli.
0: And I'm Margaret Plinter.
2: Peace and health.
0: Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU, at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com. Or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.